Welcome to today's podcast, Practicing Safe Cyber Hygiene While Working Remote. Many companies have responded to the COVID-19 pandemic by reducing or banning corporate travel and by asking some or all of their employees to work from home. While having employees work from home will help reduce transmission of the virus in the workplace, it also brings with it some additional risks. As the disruptions from responses to COVID-19 mount, it is important to consider the second and third order impacts of the extreme efforts being put in place to curb the spread. In this podcast, Rain founder and former Associate General Counsel and Managing Director at Goldman Sachs, David Lawrence, sits down with FBI Special Agent Brad Carpenter and former FBI Deputy Director and current President and CEO of Consortium Networks, Tim Murphy, to discuss best practices for remote work and ways that companies can protect their systems and data in the coming months. With that, I will turn it over to David. David? Uh, First of all, uh, Tim and Brad, it's a great honor, great privilege to have you and uh, to be able to leverage some of your experience and perspective uh, during this time. And Brad, maybe I'll start uh, with you and uh, a bit of a description on sort of how you're spending your time these days in thinking about the current environment where we have so many, not just businesses, but government agencies uh, working remotely and having to rely upon various online platforms. I would just note that uh, up until two months ago, uh, I don't think anyone assumed that uh, Zoom would be categorized as critical infrastructure, but obviously for many organizations it is. But it would be great to get a bit of an overview of the landscape. Sure. Thanks for having me, uh, David. Yeah, so I, as you said, work with uh, FBI Cyber Division, and in my current role, I do sit um, co-located at the National Cyber Forensics and Training Alliance in New York. And at that location, we are co-located with a variety of private sector companies, and the purpose of that is we share cyber threat indicators and cyber intelligence with one another so that we are staying ahead of the curve and and determining what cyber threats are at the forefront. And at the same time, we're trying to best help private sector companies defend themselves from some of the most critical uh, cyber threats that are out there. Typically, uh, what we've been seeing this year in 2020, this is before COVID or anything, a lot of the private sector companies were concerned about all of the major typical cyber threats we've been seeing. So ransomware, very big on their radar, on companies' radar, because it's uh, been been pretty uh, widespread. Ransomware is a service now, um, and a variety of variants of different type of ransomware malware out there. Business email compromise, still a major, major cyber threat. Uh, and many, many companies out there are losing a lot of money from these cyber-enabled frauds. And then some of the other uh, things that we've been seeing um, that are of concern to private sector companies uh, are third-party vendor risks, right? So every organization uses and contracts with a variety of third-party companies to provide services, critical services, and a lot of times, those third-party companies are a vector for cyber criminals to conduct an attack. Um, so many of the typical uh, cyber uh, threats are, still remain, still very relevant. But now with COVID, we see a lot of other types of fraud scams, the typical fraud scams that we've seen in the past. But because people are working from home now, they're using the computer or their their mobile phones uh, even more than they were previously, and there's a lot of cyber actors that are taking advantage of that. All right, so that's a great overview, and I'm um, sure you're busy. Uh, before turning to Tim, can you just maybe outline some of the outreach efforts that you and the Bureau have been engaged in to help educate the public? Yeah, absolutely. The So if you're the victim of a cyber crime or a cyber fraud incident, 
one of the best places you could go immediately is to our Internet Crimes Complaint Center. It's a website. It's ic3.gov. The FBI runs that site. Uh, and the reason I say that is when it's critical is usually when there's been a business email compromise. Uh, that means you've lost money or potentially are about to lose money. So that reporting uh, function by, by logging, logging your complaint into our portal will immediately get our attention and will help you try to potentially freeze lost funds or we'll work direct with you. The other thing for outreach is, you know, we're, the FBI is a distributed organization. We're not just located in Washington, D.C. We have 56 field offices throughout the United States, and each one of those field offices has a cyber task force. Similar to our joint terrorism task force, which every FBI field office has, we also have the cyber task force. And we always encourage uh, companies uh, in your local area to reach out to those, uh, to the cyber task force, the FBI cyber task force, ahead of an incident, before an incident, so that you have that contact, so that when there is a critical need that your company or organization is dealing with, you've already had those pre-established relationships. Uh, so that's what the, the FBI offers. We also have our Office of Private Sector, which is a great uh, uh, division within the FBI, which allows larger private sector organizations to connect with the FBI and receive critical intelligence and just to establish those, those uh, critical relationships with us. Jim, uh, both um, in your senior leadership roles at the Bureau, um, also in the private sector and leading Thompson Reuters Specialty Services, and now uh, with the great initiative um, with Consortium Networks. I know you've, you really spend a lot of time both thinking and trying to educate and try to act broadly in the public interest to help organizations around cyber threats. And you were uh, sort of one of the early voices um, to the now you know, significant issues of cybersecurity, cyber threats, and the nature of these uh, these threats. Maybe you can share with the audience a little bit about what you're seeing in the current environment and a little bit of context in terms of, of why uh, we are seeing what we're seeing. Yeah, I think, you know, from our clients, you know, what we're seeing is, you know, the, the current networking company I run is, is strictly built around cybersecurity. And, peer-to-peer -peer sharing on, on information in the private sector, including, you know, with, with you know, Brad's organization and, and some others. But what we're finding and what we have found is some companies um, were, were somewhat prepared for this, right? So you have some companies that were out there, they were doing remote work, teleworking, you know, the government not so much. Uh, they were doing it on a limited basis, so you're finding that they're struggling a little bit to, to stand up their remote work because of different classification of networks and the like, and people just not used to that environment. But some companies were really prepared. They had been doing remote work for, for a long period of time, and their networks were, were prepared. You know, for years we've always worried about in the in the private sector and even in the government, you know, leakage of data through, um, you know, what they what they would call, uh, you know, ghost uh, networks or, you know, back pocket networks where people would uh, use Drop, uh, Dropbox, uh, you know, you you name it, Box and some of the other cloud providers to store work emails and you know, IT and cybersecurity were just getting their arms around that with policies. But I think more importantly now. Think of, think of this, you're in a battle, you're a CISO, you're a CIO, you're trying to uh, enable your networks and protect your networks at the same time. All of a sudden, you know, your landscape just exponentially grows. And what I mean your landscape, your landscape to be attacked, right? You were really narrowly focused on your corporate networks, the different touch points, the IoT attached to it. Now all of a sudden, that's just grown wildly out of your control to be able to watch. So. You see some companies um, in not allowing, they may have remote work, but they're issuing company laptops, right, so they can make sure the endpoint is protected, make sure they're doing, uh, you know, when it's remote work, it's VPN. But a lot of them are still using their personal home computers, and so you're seeing a lot of, um, not a lot, but a few of the cybersecurity companies um, actually offer for free add-ons right now uh, during this crisis to be able to protect home networks as well, and they're just, you know, pushing out 
um, agents onto uh, you know remote remote uh, devices to protect them. Um, and so, but it is it is a huge problem because everybody is not only working remotely, working from home. They're online more. They're using the Zoom. You mentioned the Zoom platform. You have companies, smaller companies, applying for SBA SBA loans, and it's been uh, reported that those PII were exposed uh, through the website. You have increased skimming going on, increased ransomware. I mean, it's it's um, you know it's a literally fishing hole for not only state-sponsored um, uh, cyber attacks, but also just your garden variety uh, criminal attacks to you know, take advantage of people through phishing schemes and the others. So um, that's what we're seeing. Some companies are, are were more prepared, however, not fully prepared. And then I would say majority of the companies weren't prepared for this. And then the next phases of phases of this, um, you know, Brad mentioned supply chain, everything else that's been expanded because everybody's remote work. But how do you how do you ease back into it? How do you get these people back? And what's the long term exposure to these companies? Because these all these remote devices were, were were touching the network, right? So there's going to be a period of time that this is going to be affecting us, even as we phase in um, everybody coming back to work and coming back to offices. And the the last part I'll, I'll say about this, I think you know companies are realizing um, that they're going to have to restructure the way they're organized because I think they're going to find that they once they can get the security, their heads wrapped around the security. Um, of protecting their networks, protecting the endpoint, at the same time protecting their people, um, they're going to realize that they don't need so many people in the office every day. And so there's going to be this whole new thinking about, you know, how much real estate presence do you need for an office, and and then you know how you're going to protect your organization once you, once you go to that model. Jim, those are great points, and uh, among the observation that some very very smart commentators have made about. Um, the long-term impact of this pandemic is that trends that were already starting will be greatly accelerated. And there'll be, uh, as you said, there'll be certain conclusions reached about how much office space we need, how closely do we have to work side by side, um, and the opportunities as well as the risks that technology affords. And so we'll get into that in a moment. I'd like to maybe turn to both of you to maybe share with our audience some of the particular schemes and scams that are, you know, playing out now uh, that have impacted not just um, organizations in the private sector, but, you know, quite frankly, a lot of government agencies are being targeted as well. And to unpack that a little bit for the audience of, you know, the motivations behind the actors and the scalability of uh, what it is they're able to do. And, Tim, you and I have spoken in the past about um, how these attacks can be launched inexpensively, scalably, remotely, and with uh, virtual impunity. And so maybe, you know, the, the audience can get a sense both in terms of the range of schemes as well as the motivations and the actors behind it, because I think that will go a long way in, in making the point of why it is unlikely to change any time in the near future. So, uh, Brad, maybe you could start a conversation around that. And Tim, you know, it would be great to have your views. Sure. Uh, so, this is Brad. Um, definitely there has been uh, reports of a rise in cyber fraud related to themes around coronavirus, right? And what do I mean by that? More phishing emails is one of your primary vectors for cyber criminals to attempt to uh, engage in cyber fraud, some type of fraud. And why is that? Everybody uses email. And if, a, if an actor can deliver malware via a spearfish, right, a targeted email that might contain some malware or might contain some kind of fraud scheme, that's what they're looking to do. And we have seen um, uh, cyber actors 
take advantage of this pandemic that we're going through. So what do I mean by that? We've seen spear phishing for uh, charity organizations that are not really for charity, charity seeking contributions to help healthcare workers or, or people affected by the pandemic. Um, um, airline carrier refunds, right? We've all probably had airlines booked and we're trying to get refunds rather than victims calling the airlines direct, some of these cyber criminals are reaching out with some of these schemes. Um, fake cures uh, for vaccines and fake testing kits, uh, counterfeit treatments uh, or equipment related to, uh, you know, personal protective equipment that we've seen um, actors using. So we have a lot of this, uh, if you'd like to learn more on our f.gov website, um, but we've definitely seen cyber actors taking advantage of these and, um, you know, we, we definitely would encourage anybody to promptly report that to your local FBI field office. Yeah, and Brad, to that point, I know you've seen uh, no shortage of, and I know people use phishing and spear phishing, you know, it's a common term, but very often um, the underlying schemes themselves sometimes can escape folks. And uh, you have dealt with a number of instances, and Tim and I have discussed this as well, where because of the nature of business and transactions and the global nature of many companies, there's an expectation uh, speed of execution, that emails have to be answered quickly. There are transactions that have to be, you know, implemented and executed in a hurry. And certainly uh, that has not escaped the fraudsters. And uh, I know for some it'll be very familiar, but for many in the audience, the fact that people don't slow it down inside the organizations before responding, Slight derivations in email addresses um, are you know, one of the common ploys here. Um, very often actors are already inside of systems and so they know when there's a deal to be done, a financial transaction. And it's not just for you know major companies, this even includes people who are closing on homes or buying cars and sending money. But um, the change of wire instructions at the last minute or um, the change of what I'll refer to as dollar denominations, et cetera. It's a very, very common scheme and relies heavily, number one, on people trusting and also the fact that they're moving in sometimes breakneck speed. And maybe you could just talk about, you know, in particular because those schemes have, you know, caused a great deal of financial loss. Just a little bit about the Bureau's efforts to educate people and organizations around that. Yeah, so business email compromise, right, is one of the largest, if not the largest uh, cyber fraud that causes the largest financial losses uh, in total for victim organizations and individuals. So just like you said, David, we're all practicing social distancing <clears throat> physically, right, keeping physical separation. And we're being very cautious about our behaviors, but we should really try to keep in mind to do the same type of uh, cautiousness or have the same type of cautious approach when working online, right? When working electronically. A lot of the business email compromises happen because uh, like you said, business is important. Um, business decisions have to, have to be made quickly and if an actor were to gain access to an employee's email account and find some examples of financial transactions, maybe it's to pay a vendor uh, on a monthly basis, that actor will try to gain access and reroute that payment. And it sounds kind of like basic, but, it, but because of the speed in which we do business, a lot of times, uh, an, an individual for a company is not aware that their system has been compromised and that an actor is inside their system, right, watching their emails. So they can get ahead, they can learn about the financial transactions for that company, and they can reroute those payments to 
uh, themselves. And now we have definitely an increase in what we call money mule schemes as well, right? Because when these cyber criminals successfully move money, uh, they don't move it to their own personal account. They often recruit people online to utilize unsuspecting uh, um, uh, victims to help them move money. So these are money mules that are also being recruited as part of this larger cyber fraud scheme. So it's really, really uh, something that the cyber actors do all the time prior to this pandemic event, and it will only increase or has been increasing because of all of the people that are working remote right, right now uh, and trying to expedite or quickly respond to business requests. So it just helps to be as vigilant as possible, as you said earlier. It's a great point. And Kim, hey, you and I have, yeah, please weigh in. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, I think Brad would attest this. I think you would from both the public and private sector, but it, you know, this is not unique. When I mean by not unique, and that, that's, it's got to be careful with saying it's not unique. What I mean by that as far as um, causing this increase in scams, right? Um, hackers over the, the last 10, 20 years and, and most likely forever, but even before there was computers, use events like this, right, to prey on victims. And it, 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 in our recent history, if you imagine the spike after the earthquakes and tsunamis and the mass shootings and people playing on victims and running various scams, and, you know, you're seeing the same thing here. Brad just laid it out there, the, the phishing. Um, but it doesn't mean companies should, should uh, relax their their internal controls, even if remotely, right? On the, the business email compromise scheme, if you remember in the early days, we said you, you should have verbal confirmation, you know, and you even see the realtor companies now, make, whenever you're doing a closing, they send you some say, hey, don't, don't close just off an email, right? Pick up the phone and, and call somebody. And I think companies continue to need to be able to do that between their CFO and those in the financial organization, because like you said, everybody's moving, you know, at breakneck breakneck speed. So um, this is not new. It's it's just I think it's bigger than ever because of all these different people that have been moved out of the workplace into a different environment and our lack of ability to have policies in place and uh, this new way to operate. Um, and so in many ways we're creating new things as, as we fly here, which some companies are good at that and some people are good at that and others others are not. So, um, you know, let's be clear, there's not just, this is just um, another way for attackers to get at us, but they've been using world world events to attack us all the time. So, Tim, that, it's a great point, and I know um, both Bureau and you uh, when you were there, but uh, also in the private sector, have sort of urged thinking uh, like a hacker might think. Um, and, you know, to your point, and I think this is the overarching message, uh, the people who are on the other side of this are highly opportunistic, um, and they work on a ROI or return on investment of, you know, their time and whatever little capital is required and, and the labor. And so when they see moments like this, they see opportunity. They see people who are working at a distance, people who are scrambling to maintain operations, uh, people who may be uh, less sophisticated in terms of what to look for. And of course, with people working remotely, there are new challenges around the cybersecurity and, and the controls for every organization, whether you're the largest or, you know, you're, you're small and just standing up uh, operations. And I think it would, um, if I could, Tim, because you and I have discussed this before, but the tale of Equifax and what happened uh, to the company with the major uh, breach and no different in some respects than the attack on uh, the Office of Personnel Management, the government's agency. Um, these attacks occur um, and, you know, what was interesting about Equifax in particular is it went through a horrendous hemorrhaging um, both around the loss of data, but 
financially, the loss of reputational capital. There were investigations, there were hearings, there were internal reviews, there were resignations. There's a, you know, there were attorney general actions and plaintiff's class actions, and obviously uh, a tremendous concern by the public about personal data that was compromised. And after the company, you know, settled their various actions and had to reorganize both their management and their board structure and, you know, obviously, you know, enhance their controls, um, several years later, uh, the Justice Department, with based upon the great work of the FBI, uh, indicts, I believe there were three senior military officials out of China as the uh, state-sponsored actor uh, behind the attack on Equifax. And there's also been attribution to Chinese military for the um, attack on the Office of Personnel Management, which compromised personal information of government officials. And I bring this up simply as a reminder, and maybe Tim, I'd like you to expand upon this, about you know, the range of actors that are behind this, because they're incredibly sophisticated people, and I will not to defend um, either OPM or Equifax, but the nature of sophisticated state-sponsored actors and the resources they bring to bear uh, becomes particularly important at this time uh, when the world is disrupted and distracted. And as you said, uh, nothing has really changed. It just accelerates during these times. And maybe just as a reminder, just to hear from you and Brad about the range of actors that uh, are often uh, behind these types of attacks. Yeah, I think that's kind of a great segue to have this conversation around, you know, we're expecting, having spent, uh, you know, my first life in, in government um, and seeing what the capabilities are in cybersecurity around the world with, the, with our state sponsors, state sponsors. And then now in the private sector, and we're asking, we're asking, and again, not to defend those companies, but I think it's an uneven playing field, right? You're asking the, the Equifax and the OPM, um, OPM a little different. It's a government that uh, should be more protected um, by the government. Um, but like an Equifax, you're asking a team there to defend themselves against the PLA, right, the People's Liberation Army, um, you know, which I think the, the indictment named, uh, like you said, three of the members of that Chinese military. It's a component of the Chinese military. And so you're up against uh, military actors, some of the best in the world, and you're expected to protect you know, your private, your private company's, uh, network. So, um, you know, we've, we've long said, or I've definitely, uh, said through a lot of, uh, speeches, podcasts, you name it, any opportunity I get that we have to get closer, um, in the United States between the government and the private sector. Um, and that was part of the, the, the reason for starting consortium networks, right? The free, um, uh, information sharing networking organization because we believe in helping others um, fight against the adversary, small or big. And by big, I mean some of these state sponsors, the Russians, the Chinas, North Koreans, Iran, uh, the typical actors that you see in a lot of these private sector companies. Well, they're generally not stealing, well, at least on the, the, uh, uh, the PLA, not stealing for uh, immediate financial gain, but certainly for collecting information. On, on, on Americans and what they're doing and how they're doing it for a long game that they have that they have planned. So it's it's it, I think to your point, um, you know, these are national security issues and we have to get tighter in this information sharing between the public and private sector, or we're not going to be able to defend um, this country's long-term value and economic security, which is our national security, when it comes to stealing intellectual property, stealing information on Americans. Um, you, know, you can go to any major organization that creates things in this country and they've either been attacked and hacked or they're currently being attacked and hacked because it's of interest to our state sponsors to get that information on a technology front, on, you know, a supply front, you name it, that they're, they're coming after us and we have to get stronger and work together. Brad, I know um, this is a theme that the Bureau has emphasized, uh, the importance and the availability uh, to work with the Bureau both in advance uh, of an event, but God forbid, you know, there is an event. 
maybe um, you could talk a little bit about, you know, again, the outreach efforts. And one of the biggest concerns that organizations have is that if I involve law enforcement, it'll become a front page issue. And I know from firsthand experience in counseling various companies and previously being at Goldman Sachs, that the Bureau, uh, as well as some other agencies, but let's stay with the Bureau, but the Bureau has been very, very sensitive to that and has worked on um, with a number of companies on a highly effective basis uh, on matters that nobody has read about or will read about. And maybe you can just, you know, talk about some of the efforts that um, you and the Bureau have undertaken. Yeah, sure. Um, but I, I appreciate Tim's point. Um, you know, the FBI, I'm always impressed with all workforce out there, the special agents and the intelligence analysts and staff are second to none throughout our 56 field offices. We really have phenomenal cyber talent uh, located at all of our offices. So I truly encourage organizations that have any issues uh, to, to keep them in the loop or run certain things by them. Because again, uh, we're not here to open a case and look for the bad guy all the time. We're really also here to help you and organizations best defend themselves so they're not becoming victim to these organizations, uh, to these criminal organizations. So we want to proactively defend at the same time while we're looking for, uh, for the adversaries who are doing this. Um, there are, there are, as Tim said, nation state adversaries. There are criminal adversaries. And all of our 56 field offices are well equipped to deal with both. So I highly encourage uh, uh, companies to definitely establish those relationships. And and again, Tim me, uh, or David, me personally, again, I'm co-located with the NCFTA in New York, and we really deal with a lot of the big banks, uh, big financial sector companies and organizations uh, in the New York area. Um, on just a variety of cyber threats. I, I will say that I'm also impressed with the financial sector in New York and the, the resources that they put to cyber defense are incredible uh, in helping to protect, best protect their customers. Um, but because this is a constant threat, uh, sometimes it's an automated threat, right? Um, we're always looking to collaborate as tightly as possible to share information. Just as Tim said, sounds, sounds kind of simple, why not share? But it's much more complicated because prior to cyber, organizations weren't used to sharing freely information with one another. That's all changed in the cyber landscape because if one organization has had uh, a data breach or an intrusion or has a specific type of malware on their network or ransomware, there's uh, many lessons learned from what happened there. And we want to push that technical information out so companies can use that for network defense. So it's a constant uh, sharing of information to make sure we're all, we're all safe together. Hey, David, and can I just have a comment on that? Hey, Brad, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and I didn't want to, I don't want to paint a picture. I've watched an evolution of this from when I was in government to now, and I will say, no, nah, I don't want to be a shill for Brad, but the FBI has done an extraordinary job with the public-private sector outreach and the information information sharing. In fact, when I was still in government, you know, companies were very reluctant, but both because of the, the various laws and, and general counsel's office, you know, were concerned more about, you know, the FBI coming into an organization. And, and opening up everything right during this during a cyber uh, remediation or say an incident response um, on the government's uh, you know behalf working with it working with the company and they were quite um, concerned that the bureau would be looking at other things too and that's you know I think at one point a lot of companies were scared of that I think today it's the exact opposite the bureau has sent the message and they've not only sent the message but they've done it in practice because there's a number of us that have left government that consult with companies 
that, um, you know, advise them when they should be reporting these things to the Bureau, how to get in front of it, how to build those relationships ahead of time so when the event happens, you're already prepared. And the Bureau has done a phenomenal job, I would say, over the last 10 years, um, building an organization that works hand-in-hand -hand with the private sector. And there's less of a concern, I think, from General Counsel's Office and the C-suite and a company's perspective that, hey, they're only here to help us. We are a victim. We're not, we're not, the Bureau's not coming in, and I think Brian, you can probably boss is looking for other things. It, it, this has become um, companies being treated that they're under attack because, quite frankly, they are under attack. Whether it's in the physical or the virtual world, they're under attack, and the Bureau treats them as victims and comes in to help and not to be looking for other things that the, the company may be concerned about, even if there was nothing going on. And, and Jeff, just one other comment off of that. That's a great point. Remember, if you are an organization that has had a cyber incident, it's highly likely that you're that you're not the first victim, victim number one. Um, and it's very likely that the FBI already has uh, a lot of information related to that particular threat that they're able to share. So that's why you should have that established relationship because while you're making these critical business decisions in this crisis situation of a cyber event, you know, you can rely on the FBI to kind of be uh, uh, an advocate to help you, help you make the best decision possible because we'll be able to give you at least some of the information we're aware of and some of the uh, tactics uh, that other organizations have used with the same event. Let's put you inside the um, C-suite of a global company and uh, recognizing sort of some of the additional risks that the pandemic has brought on that come from working remotely and people not necessarily being able to get in touch with their or work side by side with their coworkers. Uh, you're in front of a uh, the board of directors of a major global company. Specifically, what would you be telling them to do now that they've been sensitized that this is a higher risk environment uh, because of uh, the medical crisis? Tim, you want to start, and then Brad. Yeah, for me, for. For me, it's, it's um, in one hand, it's relatively simple. I think what we're seeing in this complex world with, with the threats across the world um, is that the chief security officer and the CISO really have to be, they have a C in front of their name, but they really have to be in the C-suite, right, with the authority and responsibility, you know, attached to uh, HR side by side, attached to the general counsel side by side, because these risks, you know, when you look at risk across an organization, these are, are really serious risk pandemics that no one was prepared for, although people talked about it, including Rain talking about it for years. Um, and nobody was prepared for it, but I think if, if these individuals are actually elevated, um, you know, in the, in the top global firms um, to the C-suite to where they can really add value and have a voice, on the risks that are presented in these companies, um, I think that would go a long way. Secondarily, I mean, everybody right now is going through their plans on, on two, in two areas, right? From a physical, how do I get back? How do I get people back? How do I serve my customers? And then at the same time, how do I protect my employees? And how do I protect my networks, my infrastructure, my brand? Um, all those that generally fall under a chief risk officer as well. So I think they've got to have, they've got to get to the table. These things, these teams should be led by, uh, they should be handpicking a, a C-suite executive, whether it's the CSO um, or somebody else in the organization to lead these. And I think, you know, working with the companies we're working with, that's what some of the best companies are doing, right? They're putting these plans in place. Um, they're testing these plans in small pockets already. You know, how do uh, people come back to work? Um, do they opt in? you know, to, to coming back to work. How do you set up systems uh, today where we can phase back into where you're taking people's temperature? You're not having to touch uh, your badge when you come in 
um, and to work? How can you monitor people in the workplace? How do we keep our social distancing in the workplace? All these things that the government has been talking about every day on the news, um, the companies are working through, their groups are working through right now. So I think it just needs to be accelerated. Um, but I do believe you need to elevate now and in the future. This was kind of a wake-up call, I think, um, through some boards of C-suite of how these, um, you know, you, you can call them black swan events, but I think the, some would say this wasn't a black swan. It's uh, really predictable um, if people just would have been really aware and listening um, to some of the, you know, activity that was being talked about for the last four or five years by some, and not just run-of-the-mill security or risk people, right, from from Bill Gates to others that have been warning about this to, to example, like I said, Rain warning about it. So I think elevating um, these these executives up in the C-suite so that every day they can be have, have some type of voice to where the, the uh, chief executive officer and the boards are actually hearing what's going on in this space, both uh, virtually and physically. Great point. Before I turn to Brad, uh, what about those companies, and I know I take this up as a major global company, but uh, this is also, as you know, I know the bureaus work closely with companies of all sizes, but what about for the less well-resourced companies, the ones that outsource their security, uh, may have someone who's in charge of IT and wearing several hats. Uh, he or she could be chief security officer, head of IT, and, and you know, they also wear a couple more crowns inside an organization. On a pragmatic level, what are you telling people to do? That, that yeah, that's a great point, and I didn't touch upon it because I really was talking about those large, you know, Fortune 4 or 500 that are, that are at least um, resourced to handle some of these, these issues, um, or at least put teams together. Um, really, it's, it's rely, you have to rely on um, some others in the supply chain um, but you have to that to be very well vetted. But what we're telling a lot of them is to use these peer networks and the public-private partnerships, and we're connecting a lot of people, company to company, to talk about various plans, right? And again, doing that just because it's the right thing to do. So they have to rely on that supply chain. It has to be well vetted um, companies with with all the different checks that you would you would have in place. But it's more of a double check than triple check. On, on supply chain, who's doing the work, how are they connected, how did they, how they performed in the past, um, what kind of reliability, um, you know, to the nines will you have with that uh, individual in, or group in the supply chain. Um, but more importantly, that where they're going to learn the most is putting people together. I know in the in the government that's still involved with what they call the DSEC, with its Domestic Security Alliance uh, Council, and that group is is putting different groups together from real estate to working with the CDC and putting government and the private sector together to talk about these various plans of how everybody's going to come back to work. And some of these companies um, themselves are working with smaller to mid-size and other companies in the supply chain, supply chain to mirror what they're doing, um, even if they don't have the resources to do it. There's there's a scalability, um, you know, issue to this, but they, they will have to reach out to others to be able to protect, to protect themselves. Uh, as far as the disinformation, I think that's that's part of this uh, narrative around this cyber risk, right? Over around COVID-19, you know, this the disinformation campaign from uh, particularly our state, uh, you know, state-sponsored uh, the Russian and Chinese sources. Um, you know, they've been uh, using disinformation to spread discord in the West for for years, and this is, I mean, we all know, we've all read in the paper. Uh, whether, whether some claim it's fake news and 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 other uh, words used for it, um, this truly has been going on. It's proven. It's fact-based. Um, and I think there's people monitoring today. There's various companies monitoring today. They're monitoring social media and they're seeing, um, you know, our our state adversaries use this COVID-19 pandemic to continue to spread discord. Um, you know about the facts of the disease, right? Um, you know, you heard some things come out of China recently about um, that this was started, the whole COVID-19 was started by the U.S. Army and seeded into into China, um, which wasn't true. But, you know, the um, other media picked it up, and, and soon people started believing those type of stories. So it's hard, it's hard to know the, the regular individual 
um, in, you know, in the United States and around the world, what is real information and, and what isn't. Um, so I think you have to, you know, you see, David, you asked us uh, what kind of boards would we give to companies big and small, and I think what, what we left out and we should talk to them about is where they're getting their information and how they're verifying their information and are you using multiple trusted sources. Um, because what happens sometimes even in legit, legitimate media, um, however it's happening, they're, they're picking up some of this disinformation and, and repeating it. And so it's really hard whether it's the, whether currently you're hearing about different drugs and treatments, um, true or false, whether they're working. And, and every single day, the, it's, it's more information or disinformation about what's working and what isn't. You know, there was, it was, and I don't know this for a fact, but, uh, you know, just about uh, Johnson in the UK, right, Boris Johnson, and, you know, whether he was going to make it or not. There's there's um, certain individuals out there that said, you know, a lot, of, a lot of that was around disinformation. Yes, he was sick, but how bad was it, and was he going to pull out of it? And, you know, different news media were saying there's going to be a change of uh, leadership in the UK because of his sickness, and um, it turned out that a lot of that was... Uh, you know, disinformation. So um, really concerning during this time that people are looking for facts and, and they're being bombarded not only by the, the phishing attacks and, you know, scam uh, anecdotes for uh, this virus, but also just reading every single day through social media what's real and what's not real and very hard to discern. Right. And I think, look, the point about disinformation is, Companies think about reopening and managing their workforce, understanding not only where companies are getting their information from and what they're relying upon, but understanding what their people, their customers, their vendors, supply chain. And so there's a lot of disinformation out there about the economic impact and, and what's likely to come. Um, Brad, over to you. Uh, I have you in front of the board of both a major global company and then, you know, you're counseling um, some of the smaller companies that nonetheless are, have been victimized. Um, a sense of what would, be, what would be the advice that you're giving them particularly at this uh, particular moment in time? Sure. Uh, so all of our FBI offices often meet with companies proactively to include board of directors or the C-suite. So keep that in mind, you know, you can always have pre-event an FBI agent uh, who has expertise in this area come and proactively speak about threats they have seen, uh, especially threats they've seen to companies in similar industries. And I would say that uh, after, you know, we, we potentially share a few war stories, you know, during that conversation, the conversation would likely turn, turn to that specific organization, identifying what is important to your organization. You know, if you're a financial company, it could be your customer, your customer's uh, PII, their data. Uh, so whatever is very important um, to your organization, now how are we protecting that data? You know, we're doing everything we can to best protect that data from a cyber intrusion, a cyber event. There are there are too many scenarios of what can go wrong, and, and that's what Tim was referring to, a chief risk officers probably likely trying to identify. But we also try to encourage uh, companies uh, just to get their employees involved. Um, I know several organizations have cybersecurity committees where other employees feel like they're part of the solution or at least identifying what potential problems could be and, and how we would uh, uh, you know, correct anything or, or begin to, to uh, you know, discuss those topics. Tabletop exercises are great. The FBI will often participate in tabletop exercises at a company's location to help them game plan a hypothetical cyber event that were to happen. So there's a variety of proactive measures that you can take, but definitely not looking at the FBI as uh, the government, but really looking at us as a partner, because we do have a lot of uh, expertise 
and information related to cyber events, and we can we could really be an ally and a help. And um, I don't know if I could just uh, cover one other thing just to go back to COVID-19 fraud because it's such a hot topic right now. There, there is a lot of reporting of fraud. I just want to be clear with what to uh, where to report that. The Department of Justice has set up something they call the National Center for Disaster Fraud. You can find that on the Justice uh, Department of Justice website, or you can always report uh, fraud to the FBI directly. So go to your local field office, to our website, fbi.gov, or our our other website, which is ic3.gov. That's for Internet uh, Crime Complaints. It's a great point, Brad. We, we will post a variety of websites, not just the Bureau of Justice Department, uh, FTC. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Obviously, um, what I would say that comes out certainly during these times of crises, but I feel it's, it's, it's present um, day to day is there really is no line between the public and private sector when it comes to managing risk, nor should there be. And the ability to reach um, both within the private sector and within the different agencies and across uh, is, is absolutely essential to the management of these types of threats, uh, which uh, know no bounds between the public and private sector. We didn't you know, obviously have a chance to speak about what's also going on on the information side, state-sponsored activities to show uh, divisiveness and dissent, and I know the bureaus and the intelligence community very, very focused on those efforts. And organizations uh, obviously have to think about the aspects of financial fraud, the protection of their IP, uh, the protection of the personal data of their employees, the ability to potentially corrupt data, disrupt all the hostage, as you said, Brad, around ransomware, et cetera. So a wide range of risks that we were living with before but have only accelerated um, in velocity uh, and are finding, you know, additional opportunities during this moment. So I want to thank you both. Uh, truly a privilege and honor to have your insights, be able to share them, conversation to be uh, continued. but. Uh, I'll, I'll say this uh, with utmost sincerity. Thank you uh, both for your continued service in the broad public interest. Thank you. Thanks for having us, David. Thanks for having me, David. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining today's podcast. If you like this content and want more, go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member. RAIN members get exclusive access to webinars, podcasts, the Daily Risk Book email digest, expert content, and more. So go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member today.